Forgotten Hollywood with Chris Wineland is a production of Revive Studios. In the early 1900s, musician Robert Leroy Johnson shocked his peers with a sudden gifting and ability to play the guitar with mastery almost overnight. Johnson was previously known publicly as a very terrible guitar player, but one day Johnson shocked everyone when he picked up the guitar and played like a pro. From that day on, Robert Leroy Johnson was surrounded by rumors that he had made a deal with the devil. On today's episode, we're going to take a shift from our usual movie focus of Hollywood to its just as popular subject, the music industry. This episode will be filled with surprising stories that still have me boggled, folklores that started stories about selling one's soul for fame, and we will rediscover the forgotten history of Christian roots and reach inside the music industry. Time for a pop quiz. How many Christian albums do you think Bob Dylan recorded? Was it A1, B2, C3, or was it 5? How many Christian albums did Bob Dylan record? If you're sitting here and saying, I didn't know that he recorded any of them, I thought that it would be zero. That's also what I thought. But after doing research, I have learned that there is an answer to this. So I'll ask it again. How many Christian albums did Bob Dylan record? One, two, three, or five? We'll answer this later on in the episode, but first I want to talk about my small run-in with the musical industry and its deep roots into religion, Christianity, and other types of belief. Now, I remember as a young comedian, I was invited to be a part of the Extreme Tour, which Ted Brune had created and established many, many years ago. The idea of the Extreme Tour is that it travels the country with young musicians who perform at concerts and sometimes just open up locations at parks all across the country. And these artists are people that really want to make an impact in the industry. But what the Extreme Tour does is it allows at the end, as people flock to these stages to watch a free concert with great new acts that are sure to be your next huge musicians, the Extreme Tour does something incredible. They minister the gospel to everybody there. And so in order to get to that, Ted Brune had set up a conference for any artist that was interested in joining the Extreme Tour. And as a believer at that time, I was uh, only a few years into comedy, but I had already accepted Jesus Christ uh, before I had started the comedy industry. So I loved the idea of this tour and what it was doing. So I gladly went to Michael W. Smith's outreach facility in Nashville, Tennessee called Rocket Town to participate in this conference. And to this day, this conference still transforms how I perform and what I do because they had professional people come on stage and share things that professionals need to know. And one of the people that came on was the choreographer of Taylor Swift, who transformed the way I do a show because he said something that uh, is a secret in Hollywood. And I'm going to share it with you in case you 
or an entertainer because it is worth knowing. He said, people don't go to concerts to listen to music because they could just do that on their phone or in their ear or in their car. No, people go to concerts to have an experience. And that transformed my comedy. I took that idea into stand-up and I thought every time I go on to the stage to perform, whether it be at a comedy club or at a church or at a conference, I am not just here to reiterate jokes. I am here to give them an experience that they feel like they could never have again. And that transformed my career from that very day forward. But there's something else that I had learned there. And that was from Ted Brune himself, who had shared towards the end of the night that there were many people in the music industry that have no desire to follow Jesus. And he mentioned specifically he was talking about the Christian music industry. He never quite told names in this message of his, but he had said that he knew sternly and strongly that there were many, many Christian artists that are on K-Love and Air One and all of the Christian radio stations that have no relationship with the Lord and behind the scenes, they 100% have no desire to be Christians and that they would not consider themselves Christian. And when I heard that, I, I thought that that was an extremely shocking thing to hear. But the more that I'm in the industry of Hollywood, the more I see that it, things that you see may not be exactly the truth or as they appear. There can tend to be a bit of an illusion. And I, for one, have always prayed for celebrities musicians and actors, whether they claim to be Christian or not, I pray for them and I continue to. And this tour really had me, the, the extreme tour in this particular conference really had me reeling to learn a little bit more about the music industry. And that's where I started to connect the dots with an old phrase that people used to say in the music industry, which was selling your soul to the devil. So where did that phrase come from? Well, the phrase making a deal with the devil really has its roots in many different cultural stories and legends. The first time it gained notable usage was actually in the 16th century with a character named Faust. Faust was a German protagonist from early printed folklore, which was loosely based on the real man named Johann Faust, a German magician and alchemist who lived from approximately the 1470s to the 1480s, uh, possibly until 1540 or so. Again, this is a folklore, so when it's based on a, a real story and a real person, it's hard to quite get the dates down a little bit. Uh, Although there were a lot of people who believe aspects of this character are based on Faust, Gutenberg's printing press quickly told the story in 1587 about the legend of Faust, this fictional character, and what he did. This fictional character, not the person itself that it was possibly based on, but at least the fictional character, was at a crossroads when he met the devil in this story. And he decided to sell his soul for wealth, power, and fame. The story of the time was actually taken very seriously by those of the Lutheran faith, including Martin Luther himself. Though this legend had been retold many times in all forms of art throughout the last 500 years, the saying making a deal with the devil has carried on 
even into the 21st century regarding musicians. The first recorded musician to have made a deal with the devil is an Italian violinist named Giuseppe Tartini. Giuseppe was born on April 6th of 1692 in a town called Paran, which is an area now belonging to modern-day Slovenia, and he lived to be 77 by the time he passed on February 26, 1770. Now, Giuseppe was a Catholic man, and he studied divinity and law at the University of Padua. He started learning the violin when he was a kid, as his parents always wanted him to become a friar. After his father's death in early 1710, Giuseppe married a woman named Elisabetta Presamore. And one thing that you need to know about me is I do butcher all of these pronunciations, so I apologize on behalf of anybody that's listening and saying, wow, Chris, you're doing a terrible job with pronunciations. I'll do my best, but I think this is going to become a long-running joke in the entire series of Forgotten Hollywood that I do not know how to pronounce any of these <laughs> names. And I will say in my defense, when I went to Bible school, I was told by the Bible professor that if there's ever a word you don't know how to pronounce, say it quickly and confidently, and nobody will second-guess you. So that's my strategy. Anyway, the woman that he married was 20 at the time. And on July 29th, 1710, he, Giuseppe, was 18. Their honeymoon was not going to last very long, though. And the reason is because Elisabetta was a protege of the Catholic Cardinal Giorgio Cornaro. And the Cardinal, we'll just call him the Cardinal, the Cardinal was not too happy to find out about this marriage. Uh, he proceeded to actually have Giuseppe arrested for abduction. It was then that Giuseppe disguised himself as a monk to escape the police and he ran away and he hid out in a monastery of the Franciscan monks in Assisi. So what was interesting about that was that he was kind of, you know, running for his life so that he wouldn't get arrested based on a false claim. Now, little is known about the next few years of his life. But the next thing we know of Giuseppe is that he continued to study the violin. Giuseppe's most famous composition is that of a song called the Devil's Trill Sonata. And it's a very well-known sonata that you probably have heard. Here's a few seconds of it. This song is said to have come to Giuseppe in a dream when he handed the devil his violin and he played the most masterfully beautiful song he had ever heard. In fact, Giuseppe went on record and told the story himself in Le Land's Voyage. And it says this, One night in the year 1713, I dreamed I made a pact with the devil for my soul. Everything went as I wished. My new servant anticipated my every desire. Among other things, I gave him my violin to see if he could play. How great was my astonishment on hearing a sonata so wonderfully and so beautifully played with such great art and intelligence as I had never even conceived in my boldest flights of fantasy. I felt enraptured, 
transported, enchanted. My breath failed me, and I awoke. I immediately grasped the violin in order to retain, in part at least, the impression of my dream. In vain, the music which I at that time composed is indeed the best that I ever wrote, and I still call it the devil's trill. But the difference between it and that which so moved me is so great that I would have destroyed my instrument and have said farewell to music forever if it had been possible for me to live without the enjoyment it affords me. What an interesting dream and journal that Giuseppe claims that he had a conversation with the devil in a dream in which he made a pact selling his soul and in return he was able to play uh, the violin in a very talented and play this song in a very talented way. Now, now, if you're a, a Christian, a believer, if you've ever read the Bible or if you've ever even heard a Christian talk about Lucifer, one thing that you've known and most likely noticed is that there has historically and biblically been a little bit of a connection between Lucifer and music. And so it is also one of the reasons I think when people hear a story about somebody selling their soul for music, it tends to have a little bit more weight to it because we know of the connection that Satan had with music himself. Though Giuseppe claimed to write the sonata in 1713, it wasn't even published until 1979, which was nearly 30 years after his death. Throughout the next couple hundred years, many other stories of musicians selling their soul to the devil would arise as well. Some of the more storied and recorded ones include the Italian violinist uh, Niccolo Paganini, the French composer Felipe Mussard, the American blues musician Tommy Johnson, and one of the most famous stories of this is that of another blues musician named Robert Leroy Johnson. And this is an interesting story. Robert Leroy Johnson was an American blues musician born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi on May 8, 1911, and lived to be 27 as he passed away on August 16, 1938. Johnson was born to Julia Major Dons and Noah Johnson. Julia was married to Charles Dodds, who was born in 1865 and was a relatively prosperous landowner and furniture maker with whom she had 10 children. After a dispute with white landlords, Charles Dodds was forced to leave Hazelhurst by a lynch mob. It was then that Julia had fled and brought her baby Robert. After two years, she dropped off Robert in Memphis with her husband Charles, who now changed his name to Charles Spencer. While being raised in Memphis over the next eight or nine years, Robert found his love for blues music. Then Robert was reunited with his mother in 1919 after she remarried a sharecropper named Will Dusty Willis. They had lived on a plantation in Arkansas until they relocated in the Mississippi Delta area near uh, Tanika and Robinsonville. A school friend from the Tanika Indian Creek School recalled Robert as already having an affinity for the harmonica and jaw harp. Robert went by Robert Spencer until his mother informed him about his biological father, which is when he adopted the surname of Johnson. Now, Robert Johnson had married 
a then 16-year-old Virginia Travis in February of 1929. Sadly, however, she soon after died from complications during childbirth. Surviving members of Virginia's family told a reporter that her passing was a divine punishment to Robert for playing secular music and selling his soul to the devil. Now, one thing that has happened in history, especially around that time, is that people believed secular music and other types of music were the devil's music, and uh, the idea of selling one's soul to the devil could also have been pretty lightly connected to just the idea of playing secular music. But there's a few other things to Robert's story that may kind of make you think about selling one's soul to the devil in a literal sense. Robert Johnson met a fellow blues musician named Sun House, who regarded him as a young boy who was a competent harmonica player, but an embarrassingly bad guitar player. Robert Johnson then left Robinsonville to pursue being a blues artist. He met up with another blues musician named Ike Zimmerman. Now, this is a really interesting person. This is when the deal with the devil accusations start coming in. Ike Zimmerman was the man who taught Johnson how to play the guitar, supposedly. Now, Zimmerman was said to have had learned to play the guitar supernaturally through playing in graveyards at midnight, which was later to be confirmed as where he would teach and play with Johnson. Now, that is terrifying in and of itself. Somebody learning to play the guitar in a graveyard? Uh, I'm not in favor of that at all. Johnson's fast mystery of the guitar had led to the numerous legends of him making a deal with the devil in order to acquire that same talent. There are many legends that he went to the crossroads near Dockery Plantation at midnight where he was met by a large black figure, the devil, who told uh, him and took the guitar. He took the guitar, he tuned it, he played a few songs, and then he handed the guitar back to Robert Johnson. That's been a very popular um, story, and it's a folklore tale that I, I have been most familiar with. You may have been familiar with that. Now, Robert Johnson died at the age of 27 on August 16, 1938, from unknown causes. His death was not reported, and it was actually not until 30 years later that his death certificate was found with no cause of death written on it. There have, however, been a few different accounts as to how he had actually died, and it's just as mysterious as uh, anything about this man's life. One story goes that he was playing in Greenwood, where he was flirting with a married woman. The woman then gave him a bottle of whiskey that was poisoned by her husband when another musician named Sonny Boy Williamson knocked the bottle out of his hand and said to never take a bottle that you did not personally see open. Robert then said to Sonny Boy Williamson to never knock a bottle out of his hand when he was soon offered another poison bottle. The poison from this story is also debated where some people believe that he was poisoned um, and uh, others saying that it was a completely different type of poison. Um, I don't know, that whole thing's a little confusing, but there's another belief that Robert was not poisoned at all but actually died from syphilis. In 2006, a medical practitioner had stated that Robert may have even suffered from Marfan syndrome, which led to his early demise. Another interesting fact about Robert is that his official gravesite is actually unknown, and there are multiple different gravesites for him in the cities of 
Morgan City, Mississippi, um, Quito, Mississippi, and another just north of Greenwood, Mississippi. What an interesting uh, story shrouded with mystery. Though most people no longer may believe that artists sell their soul to the devil for fame, fortune, or musical mastery, artists today do have a similar issue of selling something, and that's their rights, uh, wherein they sell their entire rights or creative rights away in contracts. And this is due to record labels uh, writing certain things in contracts that they didn't see or faulty managers. One huge example of this is Richard Wayne Pennyman, otherwise known as Little Richard. Little Richard was born on December 5th, 1932, as the third child of 12 born to Leva May and Charles Bud Pennyman. His father, Charles, was a church deacon at the church they attended of New Hope Baptist Church. Little Richard and his siblings were raised in the neighborhood of Pleasant Hill. He gained the nickname Little Richard through his family who called him this due to his small size. His family all believed in God and they would join a wide array of churches including AME Baptist and Pentecostal churches. Some of his family members even went on to become ministers. Little Richard once said that he enjoyed the Pentecostal churches the most due to their charismatic worship and live music. He also said that during the time of segregation, people in his neighborhood would often sing gospel and worship songs to keep focus on God despite there being so much poverty. Little Richard got a start in music in October 1947 when renowned gospel artist Sister Rosetta Tharp overheard Richard singing her songs before a performance at the Macon City Auditorium. She then paid him to open up for her and kick-started his dreams of becoming a professional performer. In 1949, Richard began performing in Dr. Nubilio's traveling show. Richard would go on to perform in a ton of different other shows, even some in drag, apparently, joining an orchestra, vaudeville, and others before he eventually settled in Atlanta. It was here in Atlanta where he would see Roy Brown and Billy Wright perform, and he ended up adapting much of his showmanship and artistic style and similarity to them, and he really became this R&B singer that we pretty much know today uh, in the style that Little, Little Richard has done it that we famously know. Billy Wright then got Richard in contact with a local DJ who recorded Richard singing at a station uh, backed by Wright's band, and everything seemed to do really well. Richard recorded eight songs for RCA Victor, a label that he had contracted with for that year. And one of the songs was a local hit called Every Hour. It was his first single, and it was a, a, a pretty big hit locally. Well, you know I love you, baby. Richard left RCA Victor in February of 1952 after his records had failed to chart and they were marketed with very little effort. Shortly after this, Richard's father had died in a confrontation outside of his nightclub. Paying no mind, 
Richard continued to tour and perform and even found a manager named Clint Brantley. Richard formed a band named the Tempo Toppers. What a cool name. <laughs> and signed with Peacock Records in February of 1953, recording another eight sides with them. However, much like his time with RCA Victor, none of his songs charted despite his growing popularity. Having struggled monetarily at this time, Richard returned to Macon, Georgia to become a dishwasher for Greyhound Lines. Later that year, Richard disbanded the Tempo Toppers and formed a new band, the Upsetters. Richard proceeded to perform and sign on to a Southern tour. Very shortly after the tour, he signed on to another with fellow R&B singer Little Johnny Taylor. Richard, being disappointed with Peacock Records, sent a demo to Specialty Records in February of 1955, which began to change everything. Specialty had signed Little Richard to be their answer to Ray Charles, but not much came out of his first recording session. Richard then went to calm down from a frustrating recording session at the Dewdrop Inn nightclub, where he launched into this dirty blues song that he titled Tutti Fruity. His producer, who was with him, knew that the song would be big, so they went back to record the song with more radio-appropriate lyrics, and it blew up. The song Tutti Fruity charted at number two on the Billboard R&B chart and number 21 on the Billboard Top 100 in America, also number 29 on the British Singles Charts, and I'm pretty sure that me just saying Tutti Fruity already has that song stuck in your head. His next hit single, of course, was Long Tall Sally, uh, and that hit number one on the R&B charts and number 13 on the top 100. Little Richard continued to make hits such as Slippin' and Slidin', The Girl Can't Help It, and Lucille, all songs that you most likely know. But he had slowly started to go broke as he realized Specialty Records was shorting him on royalties. Now, this royalty and bad record deal would be something that little Richard would continue to fight for almost 30 years when in 1984 he filed a $112 million lawsuit against specialty records, Art Roop, Venice Music, and ATV Music for cutting his royalties and not paying them after he left the label in 1959. The suit was settled out of court two years later in 1986. Though many do not uh, sell their souls to the devil anymore, the music industry is still as cutthroat as ever, with many contracts not going the artist's way. The ruthlessness of the industry shows just how amazing it is for Christ to reach musicians and use them as well. Music has been around for all of eternity, with there being multiple Bible verses referencing angels singing to God, such as in Luke chapter 2, Job 38, verse 7, Revelation 5, uh, verses 8 to 12, and many others. There's even mention of a man named Jubal in the Bible who was a descendant of Cain and is said to be the ancestor of all who play the lyre and the pipe. There's even a whole book of the Bible filled with songs and poems meant to be sung. Those are, of course, the Psalms. 
And despite all of the horror stories that we hear of the music industry being filled with sin, God still reaches people in that industry. One such story is that of Kanye West. Now, um, recently there has been a lot of different controversy in West, but I think it's interesting to still visit this story. Kanye West was born in 1977 in Atlanta, Georgia, and then moved shortly after to Chicago when he was three years old after his parents got a divorce. Growing up in Chicago can be a rough childhood, and Kanye found his way to cope through rap music. Though most of his music does not portray a Christian faith, it was in 2019 that Kanye officially converted to Christianity, and very much publicly so. Kanye is quoted as saying, Now that I'm in service to Christ, my job is to spread the gospel to let people know what Jesus has done for me. You know I've spread a lot of things. There was a time when I was letting you know what high fashion had done for me. I was letting you know what Hennessy had done for me. I was letting you know all these things. But now I'm letting you know what Jesus has done for me. And in that, I'm no longer a slave. I'm a son now, a son of God. I'm free. Kanye had determined to no longer release secular music, but only that which points back to and talks about God, just like his two albums, Jesus is King and Donda. Now, since then, there has been a lot of different controversies around it, but I think it's so important and interesting to point out an artist that had seen such darkness in the industry and chose to speak out in favor of the transformation of grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another story is Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper's birth name is actually not Alice Cooper. It's Vincent Damore Fernier Cooper. And again, I'm not good with the pronunciation, but he was born in Detroit, Michigan, and he was named after his uncle along with a uh, writer. And, you know, it, it's interesting to know that Vincent's father was an evangelist in the Church of Jesus Christ, as well as his paternal grandfather was a president of that church. He was an apostle and a president is what he would call himself. And Cooper was active in his church at ages 11 to 12. Following a series of childhood illnesses, he moved with his family to Phoenix, Arizona, where he attended Cortez High School. In his high school yearbook, his ambition was to be a million record seller. He was very ambitious from the beginning. Cooper described his journey with God as, My father was a pastor. My grandfather was an evangelist. I grew up in the church, went as far away as I could from it, almost died, and then came back to the church. The 74-year-old shock rock legend was a heavy alcoholic and drug addict in the 70s and 80s before he decided to come back to Christ. Cooper stated in an interview a story of how this had happened. He said, Cheryl had gone to Chicago and said, I can't watch this. But the cocaine was speaking a lot louder than her. Finally, I looked in the mirror and it looked like my makeup, but it was blood coming down from my eyes. I think I might have been hallucinating. I don't know. I flushed the rock down the toilet. I woke up and I called her and I said, it's done. And she goes, right, you have to prove it. One of the deals was we started going to church. I knew who Jesus Christ was, and I was denying him. Alice says, I knew that there had to either come a point where I either accepted Christ and started living that life, or if I died in this, I was in a lot of trouble. And that's 
what really motivated me. I just got to a point of saying, I'm tired of this life. And I know that this is right when the Lord opens your eyes and you suddenly realize who you are and more importantly, who he is. Alice Cooper has since been very open about his relationship with Jesus. He spends much of his downtime in church, Bible studies, and has even evangelized in other celebrities and evangelized two other celebrities. On Kesha's podcast, you can hear them having a conversation about Jesus and his life. Another huge musician turned Christian story was Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, who was born Robert Allen Zimmerman in Duluth, Minnesota, to two very devout Jewish parents. Bob Dylan walked away from Judaism to pursue music, and in the late 1970s, Bob Dylan converted into evangelical Christianity. That's when he made three, count them, three Christian albums. Slow Train Coming being the first of these, which actually won a Grammy and is what we owe much of mainstream Christian music popularity to as um, no Christian albums before this gained anywhere near as much traction as this. Now, since his conversion, he went back to Judaism in 1982, and his accounts of his religious views have been differed. Among other musicians, though, uh, there are many converts to Christianity. Among these are Dave Mustaine, Brian Welsh, uh, Nico McBrien, Ringo Starr, Al Green, just to name a few. Sadly, though, just as there are many cases of musicians coming to faith, there have been some cases of Christian musicians turning away from God. You may not have known this, but Katy Perry actually started as a Christian artist. Katy Perry was born in 1984 and made her first studio album at the age of 16 with the record label of Red Hill Records. Her first album was a gospel album titled Katy Hudson, uh, which is what she had called herself, and it tanked commercially before Red Hill Records went bankrupt in December of that same year. At the age of 17, Katy Perry moved to Los Angeles, where she started her secular career that we know today. And despite her Jesus tattoo on her wrist, she has come out as saying that she's not exactly a Christian. One of the things that had restarted the uh, phrase of selling one's soul to the devil is actually the story of Katy Perry. Because when she lived in LA, she had record deals that never seemed to go anywhere. And then one, it seems that overnight, all of a sudden, Katy Perry became a huge hit. And around that time were rumors that she had joined the Illuminati and that she had made a deal with the devil. And since then, uh, you know, she had more hits than most artists ever could imagine. And so a lot of the phrase of um, selling one's soul to the devil really started to come back up because of Katy Perry's um, immediate rise after it was so hard for her to make it into the industry in the first place. Now, huge Christian band Hawk Nelson recently had uh, their fair share of controversy in this aspect as well, as the lead vocalist and guitarist Jonathan Steingard came out in 2020 saying that he no longer believes in God. After spending 15 years on the Christian rock band, uh, the Drops in the Ocean singer said in his since-deleted Instagram post, after growing up in a Christian home, being a pastor's kid, playing and singing in a Christian band, and having the word Christian in front of most of the things in my life, I'm now finding I no longer believe in God. While the music industry is a crazy sphere 
we need to make sure that we're in prayer over this industry for steady faith and new salvations, that God can be in the move in people's hearts, regardless of how many albums they might sell or how many albums they might not sell. A lot of times we can believe that big musicians and famous celebrities are out of the reach of God's hands, and biblically that is the furthest from the truth, that God can transform anyone's mind, anyone's heart. He can um, uh, wipe scales from their eyes, regardless of how famous, how well-known, or how steadfast they seem to be in their own belief system. And if we take that kind of a prayer lifestyle into those in the music industry, I believe that we're going to see a huge revival and a transformation in those that are dedicating their life to music and that through faith and through prayer, they will dedicate their life to Jesus Christ first and foremost. For more information on Forgotten Hollywood, visit my website at chriswineland.com. You can also find all of my source material from this episode and other past episodes on my page as well. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at chriswinelandcomedy. We'll be back next week with another surprising episode of Forgotten Hollywood. Thank you.